Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you, uh, traveling for a week, and we had Nate preach. He preached an awesome sermon last week, and so it's good to be back with you. Um, I miss preparing for a sermon during the week, and so uh, I think Nate asked me last week, he said, do you miss being a revelation? I was like, oh, so much. Like, I, I miss it so bad. So it's good to be back with you. It's good to see you all. Happy Father's Day. Um, I wish we could spend a ton of time talking about the importance of the image of the Father, but actually, that's sort of in a roundabout way of what we're doing today. Um, first, I want to say, if, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we have some ushers that would love to bring you a Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, that's yours to keep. You could have it, um, and if you uh, do have a Bible at home, and uh, just go ahead and put it on the table on the way back, and, uh, and the, then we'll use it for another day. But I want to say, is, as we dive into this passage today, we're talking about a very controversial piece of text. Revelation 13, the mark of the beast. Yeah, I know. Ooh, 666. Like, what does that all mean? I want to say this. So I give a little analogy. Um, have you ever been in a hospital waiting room and all of a sudden something miraculous happens? And that is the, the doctors come in or somebody, the family members come in and they talk about the diagnosis. They talk about what's wrong. And then the miraculous thing is that everybody in that waiting room suddenly grows a PhD, and they become a doctor, right? And they have their MD, and, and all of a sudden they're able to say like, oh, well, this is what you need to do, or oh, you should go this treatment, not that treatment. All of a sudden, and I'm guilty of this, I've hung out enough hospital waiting rooms. We do that, don't we? Yes? A little, yes, amen somewhere. Does, is this a common experience, or am I, I'm not just making this up. This happens, okay? You go in the hospital waiting room, and everybody knows what they should do, but nobody is doctor, are doctors. And so we have that same problem when we come to this text, Revelation 13 today. We come to the text, and although people are not biblical scholars, all of a sudden they grow an MDiv, and they just become biblical scholars, and they know exactly what this means and how it should be laid out and who the Antichrist is and all this. All of a sudden everybody knows. The reality is they haven't studied the rest of the book of Revelation. So what I hope to do today, if anything, is simply to demystify this chapter and help us see the power that God has for us in this chapter. When we say Mark of the Beast, I mean, it's a scary thing, right? I was on YouTube this week, and so, you know, something that I, I just occasionally will do in the book of Revelation is I'll type in key phrases to YouTube. I don't know why, but I type in like Mark of the Beast, and there's a trillion ideas on what that means. And there's a thousand, there, there's literally tens of thousands of videos explaining what this means. And none of them I found to be adequate. All of them had major errors. Now, I didn't watch tens of thousands of videos. I maybe just watched like one or two this week, but it was incredible. So before we get into chapter 13, if you've got a Bible and you want to just go stick your thumb in that, um, one of the things I want to do is help us remember, it's been a few weeks since we've been on the book of Revelation. Maybe you're new with us today and you're like, how do I just jump right into the middle of chapter 13? Let me give us a little bit of context as to where we're coming from today and, and to help us wrap our minds around this chapter. So in the first few chapters, Jesus shows up to John, his old friend on the island of Patmos. John is, is being exiled because he's a threat to the empire, because he's telling people, don't worship Domitian, don't worship the emperor, come and worship God. And so he's a threat in the greatest way possible, but he's sent off to this island. And his old friend Jesus appears to him, and he's got a message for the church. And so Jesus 
uh, it says that message and John records it to the church. And they hear it and, and, and they're blessed by it. And, and then the very next thing, it says all of a sudden the door is open. And, and somebody in heaven says, come on up here. I want you to see this. And so John gets a view of the throne room of God. And for two chapters, chapter 4 and 5, we're just immersed in the beauty and the majesty and the worship of Jesus. And it is incredible in the throne room of God. And, and, and in that throne room of God, we see that God is there sitting on a throne and he has something. He has a scroll. But nobody, and it's got seven seals, but nobody is worthy to open the seals. In fact, John weeps because nobody is worthy. And the seal, he just, we intrinsically know, John intrinsically knows, is God's plan for the whole world. That scroll is the most important thing in the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and 5. Because that scroll contains the whole idea of the new creation of heaven and earth. It's the most important thing. And John weeps because no one is worthy to open it. And then all of a sudden he, he turns and he hears lion, but then he sees lamb. And he sees this lamb and is as if it had been slain. He is the one that's worthy to open it. And so the rest of the book then becomes about opening this scroll and, and seeing God's kingdom break out and, and the kingdom of this world begin to crumble and the pain and the agony that happens when one kingdom is expanding and one kingdom is crumbling. And so you see different things like we, we looked at the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Ah, oh, scary, right? We looked at the four horsemen of the apocalypse and, and we demystified that a little bit. The politics of the lamb versus the politic of the empire. And, and we looked at the different judgments and things that came in the book of Revelation, and, and it's almost a great retelling of, of the Old Testament uh, book of Exodus. It's this great retelling of, of the, how Pharaoh wouldn't let his people go. And, and, and so we looked at that, and in the biggest line there, out of, I think it was uh, chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, all these plagues, all this destruction, and remember that's what happened to Pharaoh, and still, at the very end, it said, and still no one repented. Because that's the point of the rest of this book, to get this expanding kingdom, bursting of the kingdom of God, to begin to reach this crumbling kingdom and show them there is a Savior, there is a better way, that new life is possible. But no one repented. And then we see these two parables that we got to in the last few weeks. The one parable where John's told to eat the book. And it's this beautiful picture as a church of how we're not just to um, read the book. We're not supposed to just look at this and know what's in the book. But that we are to become the very message that we read. That we are to become this type of person that, that showcases forgiveness and redemption in all the world. And in the next chapter, we see how does this message get told? And, and we see the church as these two witnesses, people that are marked off, people that are the lamp, the light of the world. And we see a people who, who um, are like the trees that are planted there, bear fruit. That's what we see. And at the end of it, it says nine-tenths of the world repented. And so that is how we win the world, is simply by embodying the message that we are given, embodying forgiveness. And one of the most important points there is that those witnesses, the church, is wearing sackcloth. In other words, they are repentant of their sins. They are repentant of their sins. A lot of times people look at the church as arrogant groups of hypocrites, right? And sometimes rightfully so. But what would it look like, how different would it look if people saw the church and went, man, what a genuine group of forgiving, 
repentant people. That's what wins the world when the church begins to look like Jesus. And so that's where we leave off. I'm sorry, no, there's one more chapter, Revelation 12. And then Revelation 12 is this sort of retelling. See, what John's trying to do now is saying, look, this is how you win the world. It's not through plagues and it's not through hellfire and and brimstone, but it's through showing people the love of Jesus. And then what he begins to do is retell the history of this conflict. And he does it in a story that everybody would have known. Sort of like Star Wars. I mean, everybody knows that narrative. Like, like, uh, like even the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Everybody knows Indiana Jones. Everybody knows that narrative. Everybody knows the Superman, the Batman. We all know these stories. They're deeply embedded within our conscience. But this was a story that was Nebo and the dragon completely, um, I'm sorry, Leto and, and the dragon completely understood story of the time. And it was the story of how Apollo was born. That there was this dragon that wanted to defeat uh, Apollo, uh, Apollo's mother, Leto. And, and she bore Apollo. She was saved. And, and she bore Apollo. And Apollo went and slayed the dragon. He killed the dragon. And that was the great mythology that was alive during the time. And John used that story to tell the church, listen, we, it's not Apollo. It's Jesus. We have an immense Savior who can overcome evil. And you've got to see this. And so that's what was going on. And we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 13. The dragon could not win the war. He could not eat, devour Jesus. And so now he changes his focus to God's children, the church. And I think that's the one thing as we set today up that we need to remember. That, that the dragon, Satan, changes his focus from Jesus because he's too powerful. He can't get to Jesus. So he changes it and goes after that, is with that which is most near and dear to Jesus his people, his church. So flip with me to Revelation chapter 13. I love this because it opens in defeat, by the way. This first verse, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. I just want to pause it right there because there's a period there. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Like he was, in chapter 12, he was just defeated. And we remember the dragon symbolizes Satan who is cast out of heaven. And he stands there defeated on the shore of the sea. Let's keep reading. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and each had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. On the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast and had also worshipped the beast, beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, and language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, and whose name has not been written in the book, Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb who was slain for the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone goes into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. 
Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth that had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wounds had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in the full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the, Im- to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image of God to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hands and on their forehead so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast, the number of its name or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for its number, it's a number of a man. That is 666. Well, I don't know about you, but I think that pretty much clears it up, right? Ready to just go home? Before we get into all this stuff today, um, like I said at the beginning of this, this message, everybody has an idea about what this means. Everybody. I mean, even if you've not had any interaction with the Bible, you've heard of 666, you've heard of the Mark of the Beast, you've heard of Antichrist, you've heard of all that stuff. You have some sort of interaction with it. There's this tradition um, called dispensationalism. And um, it, it teaches, it, dispensationalism, just to give you a little bit of uh, church history, is, a, is probably about 150, 200 years old, maybe younger. There's elements of it that go back to the Middle Ages, but it's really a new theory in the Christian world. And I even hesitate to use the word theology because most great theologians would say that is not a theology, that's it's bad theology. But um, there's this theory called dispensationalism. And, and this is what gets into our minds a lot of times in our imagination. And I just want to talk about it for a second. It teaches that this is a literal passage. All the other stuff is figurative, but this one's literal, which is the flaw in dispensationalism, by the way, is that some is literal, some is figurative, and, and they pick and choose which ones are literal, which ones are figurative. Um, and it says that the mark of the beast is a physical, literal mark that you're going to get. I just want to come out and say, I don't think that that's true. And as we get into it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you why I don't think that that's true. However, I want you to hear me on this. If you're at Costco cruising around for free samples, like I do often, and one of them's like, hey, why don't we give you this free microchip? Or why don't we put a tattoo on your forehead? Don't do that. Like, that's just dumb, all right? <laughs> just don't do that, okay? Resist that. So I could be wrong on this, is what I'm trying to say. I could be wrong, and I don't think it's a literal mark or something like that. But if it comes out later that it is and that everybody's getting these tattoos, just don't do it, okay? Uh, John's, like, laughing hysterically. Because I want to make sense of the fact that this could be wrong. But it teaches that this is a literal passage, and I, I do want to say to you that I've done the work on this. And if you were to go into my office right now, there's like nine commentaries piled on my desk. I, I, I'm, I'm not the guy in the waiting room making up theories here, okay? I'm standing on the shoulders of some brilliant theologians. So what I give you today is not necessarily original thought of mine, that I just like made this up. This is studying the text, studying authors, studying theologians, and bringing that into the text. 
but still, anybody giving out microchips, just don't do it. Any of us keep going. <laughs> so I want to break down, so, so I want to give you this imagery, like even if you need to close your eyes to hear this description, I, I want you to hear some of this imagery of what's going on. First of all, there's a dragon in chapter 12, and there's this great big dragon, okay? And he's standing on the shore, and he calls out these two different beasts, one from the sea and one from the land, okay? And they both sort of reflect this dragon. They're reflective of Satan. In fact, the sermon is called the blasphemous trinity because that's what this is. This is this unholy, blasphemous trinity that, that, that Satan calls out. And, and so out of the sea, I want to talk about this first power that comes out of the sea because when you start to read the text, it just seems weird. And you're like, how do you even break this down? So there is this defeated dragon. He's on the shore, and he calls out this image of this dragon out of the sea. And if you've been with us for a while now, one of the things that we, keeps getting brought up and mentioned in the book of Revelation is the sea. And what does that mean in the book of Revelation? Well, in the whole biblical mindset, the ocean, the sea, means something that is full of chaos and darkness, and, and we don't know, and there's some depth of, uh, like, the abyss is in the sea. So there's something evil about the sea. It's scary, and it's demonic. Chaos. And so there's this beast that comes out of the sea, it's almost a mirror image. If you read chapter 12, and you read chapter 13 and put them together, and we're not going to do all the work on the screen to do that today. I thought about it, but it's just too much. They, just take my word for it. They're almost a mirror image of each other. Almost they're a mirror image of each other, but not quite. But it has such an odd description. It says this, the, the beast, this is verse 2, I saw resemble the leopard, but had feet like a bear and mouth like a lion, and the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne had great authority. What is that? That's crazy, right? What does that mean? So out of the book of Daniel, you remember we talk about what John is doing is he's taking these Old Testament texts that everybody knows that the church would have gotten because that's what they're teaching every week out of the church is their Old Testament texts. And so he's taking imagery out of that. We're not as well-versed. In fact, most people would say Americans are biblically illiterate. I'm sure not you guys, but, but most of us would, would be called biblically illiterate. That's what people call the church these days. I hope that's not true of our church. It's one of the reasons we give out Bibles, because we really are, are passionate about that. But there's this text out of Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel has this crazy dream, and he sees these four beasts rising up. And you know that Daniel's a prophetic book, and there's, he's had these dreams about things that are going to happen in the future. And what does that mean? And so Daniel has these dreams of four beasts. Um, he's got these dreams of these four beasts. And, and it, it's sort of what we find out about those four beasts. Is that one is, is sort of the image of the Medes, and one is the image of the Persians. These are the kingdoms that came after Nebuchadnezzar. The, the image of the Medes and the Persians, and then those two kind of came together, and it was, it was Alexander and Greece, and then the next one was this crazy image of Rome. And so these four beasts sort of teamed up to make the nation of Rome. And so what John is trying to say by mentioning these four beasts is he's saying, listen, the beast I'm talking about right here is your political empire. That's what he's trying to tell the people, that it is Rome that we're talking about here. Make no mistake about it. In fact, he goes even deeper and deeper and deeper to tell them, I'm talking about the beast of this political empire, which is Rome. Revelation 13, 3. 
on the head of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. Wow. Any left behind reflections like come in your mind? I read that whole series as a kid. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. But it's interesting. People have made all sorts of predictions. If any of you um, are mature enough to have been alive when President Kennedy was shot, what were the rumors? That he'll come back to life and he'll, he'll be the beast. He had three, you know, he had a head wound and he'll be healed and he'll, everybody will be filled with wonder and he'll follow him. He'll be the Antichrist. By the way, I do want to point out one glaring fact about this chapter. The word Antichrist is mentioned nowhere in the book of Revelation. Look it up. <laughs> It is not there. But that's what we project onto the text. And like I said, I was saying, I, I'm not much of a dispensationalist, and th- those folks that use dispensationalism will say, oh, no, we just need to study the text, just the text. And they bring out the word antichrist in here. And you almost just want to, like, like, throw the Bible at them or something and just say, the word's not in there. You, if you just want to use the text, anyways, that's my own theological rant. Moving on. But we do this with people. Like, uh, like, we look at people and go, oh, they could be it. Or they could be I remember I was at a church one time, and it was the craziest thing. I was like, I'm not going back to that church. I, I don't know what happened. But they put on the picture of um, uh, this guy. I pulled up his name. His name is Ukrainian president who was poisoned in the early 2000s, late 1990s, uh, Viktor um, Yashchenko. I don't know if you remember his. He was poisoned, and his head, again, big old scar and stuff like that. And somebody pointed on the screen, they're like, hey, we just want to point out, this could be the Antichrist. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. I was, just like, I, I was like a new, newer believer. I wasn't brand new, but I was newer. And I was like, I, I don't get this. This is crazy. And, in fact, the other thing that people say is, this chapter of this text is completely unknown to people for 2,000 years, but now we figured it out. That's so bogus. Don't, don't land there. That is so bogus. And let me tell you why, definitively, that I really do think that they're talking about the Emperor Nero here. The Emperor Nero, his reign was getting difficult. The guy was a beast of a guy. Like, he was beastly, okay? He was evil. He was demonic. He they the church would have looked at him as the spawn of Satan. Mainly because when you have giant parties, he would invite Christians to come. But he wouldn't come invite them to, to the party part. He would invite them to be the light. And by the light, I meant he would put them in corners and burn them and light them on fire because they called themselves the light of the world, so they're going to light up our party. Yeah. He was a pretty bad guy, okay, to say the least. There's many things that happen with Nero, but that's just one of them. So Nero is, is pretty famous for, and, and probably none of us would know this story because we weren't alive in the first century Rome. But Nero is famous for having committed suicide by shoving a dagger through his throat in his head. A head wound. Like this text says, the, the dragon had a head wound and he came back to life. And many of us don't know this either. That, you know, it, was, it would have been pretty easy to fake a death in the first century. Most people legitimately believed that Nero was still alive. In fact, this belief was so strong that the very next emperor that followed him claimed to be the reincarnation of Nero, the person who came to life of Nero, and he even signed governing documents, Nero, because people believed this message so much. And so this, 
this text of like this head wound and, and people today are like, oh, that must be some leader. That no, John was talking about something that everybody knew. It was common knowledge at the time. In fact, there was three other emperors that claimed that they were Nero. I mean, this was a, a tech, this is just something that happened in the first century. Yet we like to project it into, oh, in 2,000 years, this or that. But it's something that the church would have instantly gotten. This guy who was immensely evil. The next emperor, by the, na- by the way, who claimed to be Nero was Otho, O-T-H-O. I don't, I don't know if that's exactly how you say his name, but Otho. Um, he took his name, he signed his name on official documents, and all that. <laughs> and there's something even bigger at play here, by the way. When you look at this first beast, that, that, that the dragon calls out the first beast out of the sea, and, and it's the emperor of Rome, and John is trying to make that very clear, that this, this empire is the beast. There's something even bigger at play here, because remember, that dragon is Satan. Pharaoh. Go back to him for a second. What was Pharaoh's first name? It's not written anywhere, right? Yet we get the names of all kinds of people around him, even the names of the people who like nursed Moses. And so, was, but we don't know Pharaoh's first name. Why? I think it's because, and I think most commentators will agree, that it's because Pharaoh is going to act like Pharaoh is going to act like Pharaoh. All Pharaohs are going to act the same. You have Babylon, which is an evil empire. You have Rome, which is an evil empire. You have the, the Jews, which are called, called out and saying, don't be like one of the nations. Don't be like this group of people. You're called out. You're separate. You're holy people. Don't be like them. And I think the key to all this is found in the temptation of Jesus. And let me link these up for you. You know, Jesus goes out to the desert and Jesus says, hey, why don't you take, make this rock and make it bread? And Jesus is like, no, you know, I told, the scriptures say that, um, the scriptures say that, that man does not live on bread alone, but the very word that comes from God. And, and then Satan takes Jesus up to a high place. Says, Why don't you throw yourself down? It's written that the angels will come and attend you, and, and you'll be good. And Jesus says, no, it's written not to put the Lord your God to the test. And then, he, and then Satan takes him up to another high place, and he shows him. All the kingdoms and their splendor. I'll give you this, Satan says, if you bow down and worship me. I think the key to the, to the first beast, which is the beast of empire, is this. Every principality, every power, every empire, every form of power that this world seems to create, when human power, is what I'm talking about. Not godly power, but human power. If you want to know who John thinks is behind it all, it's the dragon. Yeah, some of you are right to go, ooh, ouch, yes. I mean, even the best presidential candidates we have, they, they get into power and they realize there's a such, I mean, they, they, they claim they're going to make everything change and everything's going to be great, but they get into power and they realize this system's way bigger than me. And there's some evil here. There's some good, but there's also some evil here. For John, every principality, every power, every human grasp at power, the dragon is behind it all. And sometimes it looks really good. We're going to get into that in the next passage here. Don't shoot the messenger, by the way. Anyways, no laughs. I'm feeling better. 
take the target off my chest. I'm not calling our government evil, by the way, just so you know. Saying any grasp for human power can be. So let's get into this a little bit more. Sorry, I lost my place here. Got a little passionate, went on a little too fast. So the dragon um, summons the first beast. Okay, the first beast is the beast of political empire, the power that's killing all these Christians that doesn't care about God, that's calling the world to worship it. And that beast summons the next beast. Because beasts have babies, I guess. And let's look at that beast. In Revelation, this, one, this beast comes from the land. And I'll just tell you right up ahead of time, this beast is the, the religion of the empire. So first, it's, it's the political empire itself. And the next one is the religion, the cultic act of worship of that empire, which was happening in John's day. They got that. Verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven and to earth into full view of the people. Because of the sign, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the beast image to be killed. You see what John's doing here? Right in the very opening, he says that these things are going to be so alluring that they will actually look like the lamb, but when they speak, they'll sound like the dragon. That's the first thing that he says. It, it looked like the second beast. It, it looked like a lamb. And we know the lamb is Jesus. But it spoke like the beast. You couldn't change the deeds. It was all a farce. It was all parody. So the first beast is political empire. The second beast symbolizes the empirical cult. It symbolizes the worship that is behind maintaining and marketing the empire. See, this beast rises up to lure people into the life of the beast. That's what it does. But it does it by trying to look good and redemptive and healing with freedom and power and gentleness and love. But it sounds like the beast because that's the life that lures you into. He does it by saying, hey, look what the empire could do for you. Look what we can offer. The empire could do this. The empire can give you freedom. So the early church absolutely had to deal with this because everything in their life was marked by the beast of Rome. Everything. Some of the earliest debates in the church were, do we eat the meat even? The meat that's sacrificed to idols, that's marked by the beast. Do we even eat that? Do we use the money? Because it talks about setting up an image of the beast and worshiping it. And you open up their money and, and guess who's on it? Nero? and the other beastly figures of Rome. Do, how do we even operate in this economy when everything is marked by the beast? This was the debate of the very first disciples of Jesus. Early on in this series, we, we looked at the church of Pergamon. It's a church that dealt with these trade guilds. And you remember that like going to the woodworkers union or going to the, the floor layer union or, or going to the, the, um, 
the, the Tanner's Union or something like that. It wasn't just like this benign act of marketing your tools of the trade. This was making a sacrifice to that God, making a sacrifice to that God, sleeping with the temple prostitute, and joining yourself with these beastly images. So it was not a neutral act. So this is what the first church had to deal with on a regular basis. It's the voice that says, oh, come on. Come join us. Come hang out with us. Let's have fellowship. Everybody's doing it. Not a big deal. That's the beastly voice. I don't know. I just made that up. There's these, what John is trying to say is, listen, just as much as the Lamb wants your worship and praise and adoration, there's a whole other force out there that wants all of that from you and is willing to take it, and it's evil. And this beast wants to put its mark on your life. That's what John is trying to say. And, and I think biblical, like from a biblical studies standpoint, it would be improper to look at this and go, oh, that's a physical beast or a physical mark that will be on your hand, your forehead, or whatever, when we look at Revelation chapter 7 and say it's symbolic. They're either both literal or they're both symbolic from a biblical study standpoint. And even deeper from a form criticism standpoint, am I right? Rebecca and John, two people who've been to seminary. Anyways, from that perspective, it's improper to look at that from a literal perspective. And so let's look at it. How does the beast want to mark his people? Just as, and, and, and people also forget that, like I said a thousand times, in chapter 7, the believers are marked by the Spirit of God. Like, that, this is, everything that we're reading here is simply a gross parody of God and what God is doing. The beast is simply trying to steal what God has already done, trying to steal the image of the Lamb, trying to steal the idea of marketing, and trying to even steal the idea of resurrection. Jesus has already done that. Trying to steal the idea of fire coming down from heaven. That's what the two witnesses did just two chapters before this. That they called fire from heaven like Elijah did. They're just simply trying to steal. All the beast can do is lie and deceive. That's it. Satan has no original thought. It simply steals everything. He's simply a parody of God. And see, this beast wants to mark your hand and your forehead. This has been the source of much mystery, like I've said but like anything else, let me demystify it. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is not a brand new idea. It wasn't like, oh, for 2,000 years, no one knew what this meant. No, the church knew this. The Shema. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. It'll be on the screen if you have a Bible. Flip, flip there with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands I give to you Today or to be on your hearts, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. It's not a brand new idea. This is something that's been around since the very origins of God's story in the Hebrew people. See, in the Jewish tradition, you had to remember. You had to remember this is the, the group of people that were coming out of Egypt. And they had to remember that God was their God and Pharaoh was not. And so God said, write it on your forehead so when you look in a pond and you see your reflection, you look in a mirror, you see your reflection, somebody looks at you and reminds you that God is to be put first in your life and that is it. That there's no room for anything else. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. They didn't say Jesus in 
the Bronze Age. He wasn't born yet. But anyways, that God is to be first and the only mark on your life. And he said, write this in your hand, tie it on your forehead, which is like a Jewish way of saying, let it, incorporate, let it just be put into your mind and let your actions show what your mind already, is already doing. So your mind is set on the Lord and now your actions will show that. That's what it's saying. And the beast coaxes people in. It does signs and wonders. And oh, look what the beast has to offer. And the beast is simply this parody of this blasphemous trinity which wants into your head. It wants into your hands. And it, it wants all that the empire has to offer to be just you. So you, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? I mean, that's the mark of the empire. There's a thousand of those marks. I wasn't going to bring up dispensationalism in this whole message, but let me tell you why I think it's important that we talk about it for a, a half a second. If they're wrong about the physical mark, and I'm right, well, all these theologians I've read are, are right, but if they're wrong about this physical mark, here's my concern. My concern is that we'll have churches across America waiting to resist the mark of the beast when they're being marked by their lives every single day by the beast, and they don't even know it. We're just waiting to resist the chip, but I'm going to go to Vegas, and what, goes, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I'm going to just wait to resist this, but hey, sex before marriage is not a big deal. Anyways, hey, I'm going to wait to resist this tattoo or this whatever, but I'm just going to talk poorly about these people because have you seen what they wore to church today? You know what I'm saying? In our waiting to resist the mark of the beast, we could be getting it everywhere else in our lives. And that's why it's important to be marked by the Lamb. The beast wants to lure us in so subtly. So many times we don't even notice it. We don't even notice it. And I love it that in the beast, it takes wisdom to calculate the number 666. And that number, I, I, I go to skate parks a lot. And I've told you guys this a thousand times. But there's this brand call, called uh, Thrasher. It's a skate magazine and stuff like that. And, and it's pretty cool. It's the, the, you know, guys skating. And I don't recommend subscribing. I don't subscribe, but I won't recommend it. Um, but they've got this logo, and it's like this beast head and three sixes on it. And it's a pentagram and stuff like that. And I'm like, why? Why, did you, why do you do this? Why do you mark yourself with this beast? And it's not... I, I mean, literally, it's saying our lives are sold out to Satan. That's literally one of the things it's saying. But it's also saying, I'm just going to engage in the empire and the joys and, of, that the empire has to offer. So what on earth does 666 mean? We're going to break this down because, again, this is another one of those things that, that people have said on the Internet. We, have no, we, we couldn't know what this meant until right now. In fact, I watched a video that said, um, you know... Uh, we, we did not know until this point in time that Islam was the beast and, and 666 is their number and, and, you know, ISIS is the beast that's rising up. And that, that was totally hidden to us for 2,000 years. Well, do they act like a beast? Sure. Do most empires act beastly? Yeah, totally. Did Hitler act like a beast? Absolutely. Was there religion behind what Hitler did? Without a doubt. In fact, um, many churches resisted what Hitler did but there was a few churches that wanted to get in the good graces of the Fuhrer. And they put Nazi, on their altars, they replaced it 
They replaced it. I'm sorry, that's not a word. They re- my six-year-old is getting into my mind. They replaced Bibles with Mein Kampf. So, yeah, the, there's empires all through the world, all through history and time that have looked like the beast. Did Genghis Khan's empire look like the beast? Absolutely. Was there a religious system supporting it? Yep. Does Islam, look, uh, not Islam, I'm sorry, does ISIS look that way? Yeah, it sure does. There's a religious system, there's a political system, all empowering it. But to say, we had no idea what this number meant until ISIS showed up, that's ridiculous. Let me tell you why. One, it could mean Nero. There's a Greek and Latin and Hebrew way of calculating letters and numbers, and so you could add it all up and it could mean Nero. And there's a couple different ways to add that up, and, and that's what it could mean. Although it would assume that you're pretty educated. So I just want to throw that out there. It might mean that, might not. I don't know. But the one we definitely know is this. Way more importantly, I would argue, is, is this. Um, take your finger and put it in 1 Kings chapter 10. We're going to go there in, in another minute. But there's this reference. I think this is a reference to the King Solomon. King Solomon, on one hand, was the son of, of the king, David. The, he built the temple to the Lord. On, on one hand, King David was like this amazing, great king. I mean, I'm sorry, King Solomon was this amazing, godly king. And there was an element of his life that, that he sought after God. He's after God's own heart. But there was this other element of his life where he was not, where he was after his foreign wives. And let's, let's get into it. First, Solomon, in the text, he is called the forced labor king of Israel. When, I think this is in First Chronicles, by the way. When they first start talking about Solomon, they said, this is the account of the forced labor king of Israel. That is saying the new Pharaoh. That is code language for the new Pharaoh. Because what did Pharaoh do? He forced labor. He became a slaveholder. And that's what Solomon started to do when he started his great building project for himself. He began to force labor. And that's the first instance that we have that, that we know that Solomon started to go away from what God wanted for his life. And the text reminds us that Solomon sold horses and chariots and he, and he, got, he, sold, he bought them. He made trips to Egypt, which a Jewish king should never do. He made trips to Egypt because God reminded him, don't go back there. The Egyptians will colonize your minds. Don't go back there. And he did. He went back to Egypt, and he became one of the biggest Middle Eastern arms dealers of chariots and horses. And he began selling them everywhere. So he, he amassed great wealth and great power. And in 1 Kings 10, verse 21, we see things like this. All King Solomon's goblets were gold and all the household articles of the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. And then jump down to verse 27. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. So one of the things we're learning about King Solomon is that he's seeking after wealth and power, wealth and power, wealth and power. That's what he is seeking after all the days of his life. And he had a lot of wives. He had tons and tons and lots and lots of wives. Not because he was such a, 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 like a sexual guy, but because other kings recognized his power. And they didn't want to be killed by him, so they'd send their daughters and say, let's make a treaty. I'm sending you my daughter as your wife. Don't kill me. And so he had all these wives, and he, these wives brought their foreign gods. 
And Solomon began to go after these foreign gods more and more and more. And as he began to do that, his nation really began to start crumbling. And when you read the kings after him, you see the origins of the crumbling. It's just crumble, 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 crumble. And the author of, of Kings is writing about Solomon's life. And in this little passage, he makes a real damning statement. Look at 1 Kings 10, verse 14. I think it'll be up on the screen. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Now, there's some folks that want you to believe that 666 in the Bible, Revelation is the first place it shows up, but it's not. Way back in the 1 Kings. Now, I want to point something out. The weight of gold that Solomon received yearly. How many of you do your taxes on your W-2 forms every single year? You're like, oh, I made the exact same amount last year. Yearly. Every year he made the same amount of gold. Every single year. So I think the author is trying to make a point. It's either one or two things, one, or maybe three things. One, he actually did make 666 talents of gold. That's possible. Unlikely. Two, his scales were off because you measured it at this point, and the guy had enough gold to figure this out. Or the author is trying to say, everything that Solomon is going after, everything that he is trying to amass, wealth, military power, all that stuff is completely incomplete and will not sustain him. Remember, I've, I've told you before, we looked at the, the, in the book of Revelation, what's the magic number? Seven. Seven is the number of completeness. John uses it all the time. There's seven plagues, seven this, seven that. It's the number of completeness. So seven, and, and the number three is, is like the godly number, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and so seven, seven, seven is completely incomplete. I mean, I'm sorry, completely complete, seven, seven, seven. And six, six, six is completely incomplete, completely insufficient. So I think what the author of 1 Kings is trying to say is that if you're searching after this, if you're searching after what Solomon is searching after, your life will always be incomplete. If you're searching after this military power and this, this wealth and stuff, you will always fall short. If you're searching after the, the wives and the sex and the gods and all that, your life will always be incomplete. Whatever image you set up of yourself, you will have to be obedient to that. And so Solomon set up this image of himself as this great power, this great man. But the author of 1 Kings was trying to remind us that he was completely incomplete. Just like in the early church time, we live in a time where there's empires, where there's cultures, even culture is an empire, I think, in, in some ways, that wants us to be squeezed into its mold squeezed into its mold of living. It wants us to believe what it believes. And if we don't believe what they believe, then we're intolerant. It wants us to believe and do what they do. And if we don't do what they do, then we're intolerant. Or that we're evil. Or that needs to be suppressed. Or something like that. Just as in this passage, there's a counterfeit lamb in Revelation 13. You know, the one that looks like the lamb but speaks like a beast. We get more and more marked by that life when we surrender to our culture than to the real lamb. That's when we get marked by the beast. When our life begins to resemble the beast of culture or empire or something like that. 
our world, our culture calls us to love by having casual sex with whoever. That's not love. That's a counterfeit form of love. But by doing that, you grow deeper into a pit of bondage and being united with a person you might not want to spend the rest of your life with. And then you're in this pit of bondage and despair and that's not really love. We call things love that aren't necessarily love. Our culture calls us to tell the truth that all religions are exactly the same and no one should ever say otherwise. That's That's not intolerance. That's not tolerance. Don't buy into the lie. There's your counterfeit truth. It says in Revelation 13, all these beasts do is deceive people. That's it. All they want to do is deceive people. Our culture calls us to true commitment until there's suffering and life gets tough. Then you can bail out of whatever commitments you've made. Don't buy into the lie. Our culture calls us to freedom from religion. It just gets in the way, and we don't really want to hear it anyways, and it's kind of annoying. Don't buy into the lie that God is not alive and present in this world. Our culture calls us to be blessed. I mean, you deserve it. Go on vacation and spend tons of money on yourselves. Buy the house you can't afford. Buy the car you can't afford. Get wheels, get rims on that thing. I mean, you can't afford it, but you deserve it, right? It shows that you're blessed by God after all, right? No. No, not even remotely. Don't buy into the light of that counterfeit blessing that, does, that, that makes the mistake of calling greed blessing. Don't buy into that lie. That's what the beast wants us to, to buy into. That's what the beast of our culture tells us. Satan uses the, the cultic practices of the first century. You know, just out in the open. Oh, we're going to worship this God, worship this God, worship this God. But I think Satan's pretty sneaky today. Give me an amen on that. Thank you. So again, I'll tell you, if the dispensationalists are wrong, it's totally possible that you could be waiting to resist the barcode, the microchip, the whole, but by the whole time you're being marked by the beast of the empire. I love the way that Eugene Peterson, by the way, if any of you are looking for a fun book to read on Revelation, Reverse Thunder, Eugene Peterson. I love what he says about this passage. When the mark of the land beast replaces the Shema on the forehead and on the hands, religion becomes consumption. People become gross parodies of the gospel, buying all they can to show that they are blessed by God bowing before every display of success. The buying and selling of religion is the mark of the beast. I read that and went, wow, that's a punch in the gut. Maybe your life is marked by the pursuit of wealth. Maybe it's marked by the pursuit of power or pleasure. I don't know. But I think what John is trying to tell us today is that that is a counterfeit way of living that will never bring you completeness before the Father, that will always be 666 and not 777. Satan wants to lure you into his incompleteness, and that is his life's work. Don't buy into the lie. 
This morning, I want to invite the band back up. And I know some of you are probably still chewing on that. It took me weeks to chew through that message. And I want to invite you to just chew through that. Maybe you, some of you want to just get real honest right now and say, I've been waiting to resist some tattoo or microchip, but I've been marked with the beast the whole time. The greatest thing is in Revelation 18, there's this admonition to the church, come out of her, come out of her, come out of Babylon the great, come out of her. I think as Christians, there's a way out. And that is only through the blood of the Lamb. So if you're here this morning and you said, yeah, it's, I've been a Christian forever, but I've been, I, I haven't even noticed, I've been marked with the beast. Maybe you're here today and you simply need to say, Lord, I need you to cover me and forgive me by the blood of the Lamb. Maybe you today need to showcase that repentance that the church should be known for. And just right during this next song, you need to repent of that. Maybe you need to give glory and praise to the Lord. Maybe today you need to decide to follow the real Lamb and not the counterfeit one. I'm just going to simply lead you into a prayer. Maybe that's a recommitment for you. I simply want to lead you into a prayer for that. And if, if that's you, I want to invite you to come talk to me after service. I just want to pray with you and get in touch with you a little more. Let's pray. Father, some folks today simply need to repent. They need to offer the beastly stuff that's been going on, the incomplete stuff that's been going on in their lives over to you. Whatever that is, Lord, I pray that they would offer that over to you and, and, and say, Lord, Help me to be marked by completeness and by your spirit, not by the mark of this beast. There's some here today who simply need to acknowledge, Lord Jesus, you are God. That you alone can save us from our sins. That you alone can restore. That you alone can make us new. Some of us need to just say those words, Jesus, you are Lord, all other gods are, are all other things that want our attention, that want to be a God. Those are all parodies or evil. Lord, as we think about today, I think about the, the, the very last words that you left with the disciples to pray. And that's to help us watch over this area of temptation in our lives. Lord, the temptation to be like the beast, to be lured into the empire. Protect us from that temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Lord, and help us to give you glory every day in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.